I think what emboldened Putin was the fact that the United States under several administrations, including Barack Obama's, did not push back harder. If you're Vladimir Putin, there was nothing out there to make you think that the West would actually get its act together this time, but it did. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. As Russia's war on Ukraine intensifies, other countries are deliberating how to respond to the unfolding humanitarian and political crisis. Few people have more intimate knowledge into the thinking of the Washington establishment than David Sanger. Sanger is a senior writer for the New York Times covering the White House and national security. He is a three-time winner of the Pulitzer Prize, a frequent CNN expert analyst, and the author of three best-selling books, the most recent of which is The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age, which was also an HBO documentary. I caught up with Sanger on Tuesday as he was driving from the White House to his office. David Sanger, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Great to be with you, and um, great to uh, be in another conversation in Vermont. I wish my body was in Vermont, but unfortunately (laughs) it's not right now. Well, we in Vermont are counting on you, your body, to be in uh, right where you are, in Washington, keeping us tethered to uh, what's going on in the White House. Um, You had a story this week titled, How Does It End?, uh, about the Ukraine-Russia conflict, and you outlined different scenarios uh, for the end game. One is diplomacy, one is a long-grinding war, the other is a divided Ukraine, and another is escalation of the war. So talk about these scenarios and what you believe is the most likely direction that you see this heading. Well, remember, we're only 19 days into this. So, you know, imagine for a minute that you would ask somebody 19 days into World War II or 19 days into the Korean War or even 19 days into um, the Iraq War, uh, how they thought this was going to lay out. And the chance that they would be completely wrong would be extraordinarily high. So let's start with that likelihood that whatever I tell you will be overtaken by events. Um, The way we would like this to end, I mean, not you know, this is a completely unprovoked, unnecessary tragedy that has already caused untold thousands of lives and displaced three million people externally and who knows how many millions internally and caused endless grief. So um, the best way for this to end would be for some kind of a negotiated uh, settlement. Um, the Russians have laid out what their requirements would be. Uh, they're basically three, if you believe that's their real list. And those include, um, first, uh, that uh, Ukraine recognizes that Crimea is Russian territory. Um, that would be difficult, but I can't imagine impossible. Uh, good Vermont historians will remember that Ukraine was given back, uh, uh, was given Crimea by Khrushchev, who himself was from Ukraine, um, in the late 50s, uh, after it had been part of Russia for many years. Um, The second is that Ukraine would recognize the two separatist territories in the Donbass region uh, as a Russian territory. That would be even harder. And the third is that it would give up its NATO aspirations and declare itself neutral 
probably along the lines of sort of the Austrian model. That is to say, you can have a military, but it can't be a terribly strong one. Um, those are the stated Russian requirements, whether they would actually be the requirements that would then result in Russia picking up and leaving, I have my doubts. The second way this could end is that there is no negotiated solution and that we just end up in a pounding war the way Russia um, leveled Grozny uh, a number of years ago. And uh, in that case, as in the Chechnya war, um, the bottom line here would be the Russians really don't care what kind of shape the territory is in when they take it over. They just want to take it over. The third option would be that uh, Ukraine gets divided, that the Russians realize that taking the West is just too far a reach. Clearly, they've miscalculated about how what they needed to do and when they needed to go do it uh, and what kind of force it would take. In that case, they might divide uh, Ukraine by force, force the government to flee to the West, and you would see Zelensky basically running a rump government from uh, from the, uh, the western part of the country. If the uh, you, uh, Russians were successful in taking over the entire country and occupying it, which I actually think is too far a reach for them right now, then you might see a government in exile and uh, an ongoing insurgency. Um, the escalation elements of this, they're not pretty. Uh, they would suggest that the Russians might go into... Moldova or go back to Georgia, where they conducted a war in 2008 briefly. Um, they suggest the Russians could reach for weapons that they have not used. There are four of those uh, out there, uh, chemical, biological, nuclear, and of course, cyber. Uh, and uh, that would raise a host of new set of issues and could bring the United States and NATO into the war even if the attack wasn't directly on NATO territory. Hmm. You wrote in your book, uh, The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. You described how cyber warfare is uh, unusual and powerful because they're cheap, stealthy, and widely available to uh, a, a range of powers. But here we are once again in an old-fashioned hot war being waged by a country that is a master cyber warrior, Russia. Are you surprised by that? And, and how, vul how concerned are you about our vulnerability to a potential cyber attack that, that arises out of this conflict? Well, I think there is uh, a, a large chance of a cyber attack. The question is, or a series of them, the question is, would it be aimed at uh, uh, Ukraine, at Europe, at us, or at all of us? But You've raised the big issue that we're all debating, which is um, what was the dog that didn't bark here? And most of the early models of a uh, Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine all called for using cyber in the opening moments for um, bringing down the electric grid, bringing down the communications centers, and uh, then basically using that as the prelude to military activity. They didn't do it, and the big mystery is why. One possibility is they thought they were going to win so quickly that they didn't want to cripple systems that they would need as occupiers. Um, the second is 
that while cyber is fabulous as a weapon in that space, that murky space between peace and war, it's not terribly useful when you're actually in a war. If you're going to take down um, the power grid, it might be more efficient to do it with a missile through an electric power plant than to try to go to all of the trouble of dealing with cyber. Um, this is one of the mysteries we're going to have to go solve. But I can say this, that now that the sanctions are in place, um, we're able to cripple the Russian economy because we control the dollar and we control uh, many of the world's leading financial institutions. The Russians don't have that option. Their only option in all of this is to um, try to be able to go after our financial institutions in a cyber way. That's the only way they can reach our financial system. And when they do it, I suspect they want to go do it right and big. And so I wouldn't be shocked if that job has been handed to the GRU, the group that did the hack on the election systems, that has done so many of the hacks inside uh, Ukraine before, or the SVR, a different Russian intelligence agency that did solar winds, a very sophisticated attack a bit more than a year ago on uh, uh, on the uh, uh, code, basically network management software that's used widely in the U.S. government and in um, private industry. So um, the fact that we haven't seen it yet is interesting, but not dispositive. Hmm. And when we say we have not been attacked, is it possible those attacks have been defended or deflected and we just don't know? Um, if they were defended and deflected, we'd probably know that would be hard to hide. If they were preempted by something the U.S. Cyber Command or NSA did abroad before that could happen, that might be a harder thing to go um, to go figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about the impact of Donald Trump um, on this whole scenario. Trump and his inner circle, including Paul Manafort and Rudy Giuliani, had deep ties to Russia and Ukraine, uh, including with many people who were close to Putin. How do you assess the impact of Trump on the current U.S. relationship with Putin and with Russia and the role it may have played in making Putin feel he could get away with this because he's done pretty well um, so far in handling the U.S. Yeah, I think that his luck, his streak of luck may have run out. Um, we don't know how this will end up, but I think you could make a persuasive case that Vladimir Putin is going to end this conflict in a lot worse strategic position than he had it. You know, three weeks ago, we were thinking that Russia's military was 10 feet tall. We now think they're kind of the gang that couldn't shoot straight. We thought that Putin was a master strategist. We now think he bit off more than he could chew and didn't understand, underestimated the Ukrainians and overestimated his own power. Um, we thought that uh, he was trying to split up NATO and he ended up reaffirming uh, NATO's power. Um, these are all, you know, pretty big mistakes he made. To the shorter question of, of Donald Trump. So first, why did Putin not do this when Trump was in office? Uh, Trump wouldn't have organized NATO against him. He would have sort of shrugged and said, well, I guess, you know, 
he was a smart guy to go in because he knew he wouldn't suffer many sanctions. I don't know what Donald Trump would have said, but I can't imagine him organizing the NATO allies to go deal with this. And then I think the, the second mystery is if you were in Congress and you're going to be applauding um, Zelensky on Wednesday morning when he gives this speech and calling him a great hero, how would you square that if you voted to acquit President Trump in the first impeachment, which was all about denying aid to military aid to Ukraine until they provided dirt on uh, on uh, then candidate Biden? Um, I, I'm sure they'll justify that thought to themselves, but it is worth mulling. Do you think that Trump and and Putin's relative success with Trump? Uh, you know, pl interfering in a, in a U.S. election in 2016. Do you think it emboldened Putin? I think what emboldened Putin was the fact that the United States, under several administrations, including Barack Obama's, did not push back harder. When I was working on cyber issues during the Obama administration, and I would go into the State Department or the Pentagon or the White House to discuss the details of... Um, cyber attacks that we both knew came from Russia, they wouldn't even attribute them publicly to Russia. I think that was a huge mistake. They certainly didn't punish Russia for that. The punishment Russia got for going into and annexing Crimea in 2014 was a year late and way short. The punishment they got for solar winds was, again, way short. The punishment they got for election interference, again, same story. So if you're Vladimir Putin, there was nothing out there to make you think that the West would actually get its act together this time, but it did. There was uh, a hollowing out of the State Department and the intelligence establishment under Trump. We we learned, you know, heard about large numbers of people leaving the government. How is that affecting U.S. capability now as we navigate this crisis? Um, I think there was some loss of old talent, um, but uh, I think that a combination of Secretary of State Blinken uh, at, um, uh, at uh, the State Department and of uh, Bill Burns at CIA have managed to rebuild some. And while a lot of old hands and old knowledge was lost, a lot of new high tech knowledge was gained uh, in the past, you know, year or so. Um, so um, I think, you know, it was unnecessary, but I think the damage to the alliances was probably greater than the damage to the bureaucracy. You are in regular contact with people inside the administration. How would you describe their mood as they're dealing with this now? I'm worried that this war is going to spread to involve us. I don't think they give it a high percentage chance, but, you know, even if that chance is 15 or 20 or 25 percent, that's pretty significant. I'm worried that um, the humanitarian disaster is going to continue for some time. Uh, worried that American uh, attention to this could flag. Uh, if, uh, you know, you go back to the... Um, early Iraq war uh, polls, people were overwhelmingly 
in favor of the invasion that President Bush ordered, even if it was on clearly on, on some false pretenses. But think about how quickly they wearied of the conflict. Mm-hmm. And that's the nature of the American public. As a journalist, you are in uh, the crosshairs of a massive global disinformation and propaganda battle being waged by NATO and the U.S. on the one side, um, Russia and in, and now China teaming with Russia. How do you as a journalist ensure that you're not getting played? Uh, and certainly we have the recent history of the Iraq war and the ways that the Bush administration successfully manipulated the media to its advantage, um, you know, in very much fresh on our minds. Well, first of all, there's media and then there's media. I mean, I think the problem is that the phrase is used to embrace um, so many different um, players um, along the way. Um, But uh, I do think that... um, Uh, It is um, incumbent on us to weigh the claims you're getting from all sides. We're not new to disinformation. We have equipped and armed ourselves much more than we have before. The Times now has a um, video investigations unit that can analyze photographs, videos, date them, try to figure out their origins, try to figure out their locale. And we've used that to sort through an awful lot of fake stuff, some of it intentional, a little bit of it unintentional. Um, So, you know, we're we're coming to this much better armed than we were five or 10 years ago. Does that mean that we won't get fooled in the future? Of course we will, I'm sure, along the way uh, in this arms race, people will do a better and better job of that. But uh, we've built up a lot of skills and a lot of staff to deal with it. Talk about China in all this. You've written recently about uh, the the way that the, the administration is handling China, and the Times has reported that, um, however this turns out, China is likely to come out as a winner in some respects. What's your take on that? Well, the Chinese certainly think they are going to come out as a winner uh, on this. Um, part of their argument uh, is that... Um, Uh, The United States and Russia, their two major superpower adversaries, uh, are um, going to um, be spending a lot of time at odds with each other, which means they're not paying as much attention to China as the Biden administration came into office to do. The whole um, superpower strategy of uh, the Biden administration was really focused on Um, dealing with a rising and increasingly competitive China that is the real long-term existential threat, and I think it probably uh, still is, and uh, containment policy of Russia. Um, Now, mind share is going to go to Russia. Resources will go to dealing with Russia. They're not always the same resources that you need. You need a very different skill set to compete with China, and much of it depends on domestic and industrial policy uh, here at home. Um, But the fact of the matter is, um, this is a very different form of contest that we're involved in right now. And the Chinese feel like if they can just keep the U.S. and Russia at each other's throats, they'll be free to go off and do whatever they want. 
they also face the prospect of if Putin is weakened or deposed, a destabilized vast border uh, with a destabilized Russia. That's right. That's absolutely right. So in some respects, uh, that is certainly not a winning scenario because the spillover into China, um, the potential for that is obvious. It is, but, you know, the Chinese and the Russians signed this not quite alliance just on the opening days of the Olympics. And I think that Russia sees China as an essential partner. I think China sees Russia as a useful partner in a sort of axis against the United States. But in this relationship between Russia and China, the Chinese have the upper hand. And the Russians need them more than they need the Russians. Hmm. You've been reporting for The Times for 40 years. Um, Thanks for the reminder, David. I thought you might have forgotten. And I suppose this is at a point I can say we graduated college the same time and you went directly yeah, to The right. Times. Um, what are some of the most significant changes that you've seen in how you do your job during those four decades? It's barely recognizable. You know, when I joined the New York Times, it was primarily a newspaper. It is now primarily, obviously, a broad spectrum news organization where you are reading that news on multiple platforms, whether it is our app or whether it is uh, on online or whether you're getting your news through Times channels on Facebook or elsewhere, or starting this week because we wanted to have more of this news available to Russians and to um, uh, and to people in Eastern Europe on Telegram, uh, of all things. So we've become much more platform agnostic. Uh, we've hit uh, more than 10 million subscribers for the first 30 years of those 40 at the times. We were stuck down around a million, million and a half on Sundays. And at a moment that most news organizations, as you know well, have been shrinking, the Times followed a very risky strategy that paid off and it has been expanding dramatically. And it's come to realize that a news organization is primarily built around the hard news, the kind that you and I have just been discussing, but that it's also about helping you find the restaurant you want to go eat at, helping you do Wordle or um, uh, Spelling Bee each day getting at the recipes, the lifestyle stuff, and that people may come for the lifestyle and move over to the Ukraine coverage. They may come for the Ukraine coverage and move over to make it more of their life because of its utility for lifestyle. But it's basically the, the most loyal readers are those who are using it for all of this. And um, that goes way beyond the conception of what we were doing when I joined the Times as a news clerk in 1982 or when I became a technology reporter the following year, even when I went off to be a foreign correspondent in Asia for, for many years. Um, I would say that as a news organization, it has changed more in the past five years that I've been in it than the previous 35. Hmm. How so? Because it's gotten larger. Its mission has evolved. Its reach has increased. Its influence, I think, has increased even in this polarized world. And uh, the pace of what we're doing is so much higher than what we were doing then. And, you know, if you're a journalist today, 
you know, when I went into the business, you went in and, you know, your output was going to be um, all in print. Well, here I am doing a podcast with you and frequently do podcasts with The Times, The Daily uh, and others. I'm a, a national security and political contributor to CNN. You have to be ready to do this on TV as well. You do this in radio formats. Um, you do this on our live blogs, uh, which are what you're seeing when you first turn on the website in a big news day. Just an hour before I was um, talking to you, I was in the press room as the White House announced, no surprise, that the president is going to NATO next week in Europe. And uh, I didn't even leave my seat. I was putting that up on the, on the Times um, uh, homepage. As we spoke, that used to be sort of a wire service function. Now it's all part of what we do. And then we repackage it, uh, analyze it, and put it in as a more considered news story. And finally, David, uh, many of our listeners uh, may be unaware, but the reporter who they see covering the White House and identified as a White House correspondent has at times been reporting from Vermont. So reveal uh, your Vermont connection to us. Well, well, we love Vermont. My wife and I have gone for Vermont since we were all in college together with, with you, David. Um, we bought there uh, more than, uh, I guess, about 30 years ago. Uh, our kids have grown up partly in Vermont. Uh, I use it as a, uh, a, a sanity place, a writing refuge. I've done a few books there. Did a lot of Confront and Conceal, a book about uh, the Obama administration and the cyber uh, pro, the, the classified cyber programs against Iran uh, from up there. Did a good deal of uh, The Perfect Weapons written in Vermont. Um, so we love the place. And um, uh, I'm frequently seen uh, around there, particularly in the summers, but on occasion in the in the winter. So um, uh, great state and um, got a lot of journalists in it. Some retired, some current, but uh, high end, high end journalism state. Good. Well, uh, David Sanger, I hope we bump into you on the streets of or pathways of Vermont uh, sometime soon. And thanks so much for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Great to be with you, David. That does it for this Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.